God has definitely been faithful, even as we have gone through some very difficult times as a church, as a community, as a nation. God's faithfulness has never been brought into question. In fact, let us go to the Lord in prayer at this time to continue to seek his faithfulness. Father, we are incredibly grateful for your faithfulness to us. In the midst of this crisis, we are reminded that you are not confined to the four walls of a church. You certainly show up in places like our church, or in a revival meeting, or on a campground, but your throne is in heaven, and you choose to dwell in the hearts of men and women who serve you. Father, I praise you for the many answers to prayer that we are experiencing even today. I have friends that have battled through this coronavirus and they are now recovering or have fully recovered already. Thank you for walking with them through this. Thank you for the medical knowledge and technology that is available to us as well. Thank you also that the overwhelming majority of us have remained relatively healthy through all of this. We ask that you would continue to keep it that way. We pray for healing today for those who are sick. We pray for protection for those who are serving on the front lines of this. We pray for wisdom for all those who are leading and making decisions. We pray for peace to fall upon all those who call upon your name. We pray for your financial provisions for all those without jobs today, especially as we go through this crisis. And finally, and most important, we pray for revival to break out across this land. I pray that you would use today's suffering and hardship to draw us closer to you than we've ever been before. I pray that as we come out of this, we will find a church that is hungrier for you than ever before. May we long for the fellowship of the church more than ever before, as we've experienced a time where such fellowship is not so much available to us. I pray that you would use us, even now, to share the hope and love of Christ with our neighbors. As new conversations and relationships are formed, we invite you to use this struggle for your good. Now we invite you once more to fill this service. Speak to us and challenge us that we might better serve you in a world that desperately needs you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, all of this downtime has created a great opportunity for me to reminisce about the way things used to be. I may be the only one who has done that, but I have done it. And I can look back at various turning points in my life and see how much each one of those changes affected not only me, but others around me. On a personal level, my story begins in a single-parent home with a mom who just wanted to provide for her kids. As a kid, things were so simple back then. I had no stress. I got up in the morning and I played outside all day, or at least until I heard my mom's voice from the front porch yelling for the kids to come home. And then it was time to come home. In fact, you didn't waste any time because she was expecting you immediately. Looking back, I get glimpses of the things that took place, but even in the negative things, we were in good shape, at least in my mind. 
I can remember our apartment burning down on one occasion. My dad walking in and out of our lives and us moving to a new town. But those things really didn't change much for me. It was change and you just dealt with it. The first real life change for me was when we started going to church together as a family. It was a Wesleyan church, and I think my mom just wanted us to have some good male role models in our lives, and she found them there in the church. But we found so much more. Through the people in that church, we discovered what real men and women of God were supposed to look like. They did more than just teach us about the holiness of God. They showed it to us. They loved on us, faithfully walking alongside us. And eventually, we would be able to serve alongside them. Throughout the years, our family would change a lot. But for me, the biggest change took place when I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. I wasn't immediately transformed into this angelic being that you see in front of you today. Just kidding. Obviously, I am still a work in progress, but God began to transform everything about me. I can truly say that I am not the same person, nor will I ever be the same person that I was before I came to Christ. Outside of my personal life, there have been multiple situations that have changed the world. So this is not just unique to me. These are in no way unique to me, but they clearly impacted me along with others. I can still remember, even as a child, when President Reagan was shot, when the space shuttle disaster took place, when the Y2K hoax never happened, and when the attacks of September 11th did happen. I would imagine that the shutdown of 2020 will be added to that list for many people. But the point is that there have been many things that have gone into us becoming the people we are today. But God has been faithful through every single one of those things. I share all of this with you today because our passage this morning also begins with a, with a bit of reminiscing. We're in Acts chapter 7, so if you want to go ahead and turn there already, you can. We're in Acts chapter 7 today, and typically we simply refer to this chapter as the place where Stephen is stoned. But there is so much more to it. To better understand this passage and what is happening, we need to start with who Stephen was. He is first introduced to us earlier in Acts. In fact, in chapter 6, verse 5, the church is growing by leaps and bounds, and it quickly becomes evident that there is too much work for the apostles to be able to do everything. So they propose the idea of delegation, appointing other well-respected people to help meet the needs of others. In fact, his name is the first one listed among those who would help. And he is the only one that really receives a description describing his character. Acts chapter 6 verse 5 says, This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, 
Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. We do hear a little description of Nicholas there, but it's more related to his background, his past, rather than his current condition. So Stephen is described as a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. With that description, it would only make sense that he was quite bold and not afraid to speak as the Lord led him to speak. In fact, the majority of Acts chapter 7 is a record of what Stephen had to say, even if it was somewhat offensive to the receiving audience. Now, I'm not going to read the majority of his address, but you can go back and read the first 47 verses on your own. But let me at least address what he is saying in a general way. It's interesting that he doesn't begin with anything controversial. Instead, he begins by reminding them of their own story. And if you were to look in Acts chapter 6, you'll see that an accusation arises against him where they are claiming that he is basically going against what Moses said. So as we look, it, it really makes sense when you keep that in context. He reminds them of their rich religious heritage. It's ironic because, again, he is being accused of trying to tear down their rich religious heritage. Instead, he is embracing it. And I would even imagine that there might have even been a few amens that were shouted as he spoke because he said things that they had heard when they were kids and they agreed with it. But as he shared the story of the Jewish people, he did not see it as being removed from the present day. What I mean by that is he saw the past as God's tool to bring people to where they are in that particular moment. That means that everything that is recorded about Moses was being used by God to pave the way for the Messiah who was to come. And they're not separate stories. They're one complete story that just has different chapters to it. As Stephen shares about Moses... He is connecting the dots to what happened in the Old Testament, to what happened in the New Testament. And you can take it a step further and say that what happened in the Old Testament led to what happened in the New Testament, led to what happens here today in you and me. I want to challenge you today to remember your story much as Stephen was helping those people to remember their story. What are the things that God has done to bring you to this point? In all of these things, God's faithfulness is revealed in our story. During times of hardship, he has been faithful. During times of blessing, he has been faithful. During times of change, whether it be viewed as good or bad, he has been faithful. And every one of those events were simply God's tool to get you to where you are today. Now, I do realize that for many of us, our story is not always attractive. There is pain and there is regret. There are tragedies that we would have never asked for. I'm not proposing that God made you go through those things just to get you where you are today, but I am saying that God is certainly able to use even your brokenness to bring healing and wholeness for today or tomorrow. In fact, 
maybe some of your suffering can be redeemed, allowing you to maybe help others who are in the midst of suffering now, bringing healing to those that you love the most. I recently asked a question on our website that simply said, how is God changing you through this crisis? And as I expected, every answer was positive. I had one humorous answer. It was from a young lady who is a part of a newly blended family. The mom and dad recently married, bringing kids from each side of the family. She said, before we were a newly blended family, now we are housebroken. I assume she does not mean that the kids have just stopped peeing on the floor in the kitchen. Her point was that God has used this time to bring their family closer together as one. Not two families that just happen to be living in the same household now, but one family together. I had another, a soldier, who reflected on James chapter 1, verse 2 and 3, which says that we should consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Sometimes the struggles of today seem so big, but God is bigger than the struggle. And while we do not know what tomorrow will hold, we can trust that God is already preparing us for it. Then there was a general response that many gave, reflecting on the fact that this current crisis has caused many of us to slow down and to be more intentional about prayer. I guess at times we have filled our days with all sorts of other things. And then if there was anything left, we'd use it for prayer. Instead, in this crisis, we have been far more intentional in our effort to make prayer a priority. One of the respondents actually talked about the fact that it had been a long time since she had actually prayed on her knees actually humbling herself. I think sometimes we just pray flippantly in the midst of everything else, and I'm not saying that somehow it's less sincere. There's something humbling about dropping to your knees, knowing that you have nothing left to give, but we have much to receive in prayer. All of those things are great things that have come out of this time of difficulty. Well, beginning in verse 48, Stephen then starts to shift directions. He's not looking at the past as much anymore, although there's still a little bit of the past that's coming in here. As he has been talking about the past, he now wants to talk a little bit about the present too. And I even used a portion of this in our prayer earlier today. He says, however, after all of the other stuff from the past, however, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all of these things? I know we're already talking about the past, but he's talking about the present here. He begins, heaven not, it's not that heaven was my throne, heaven is my throne. 
He is reminding them here, not of what happened way back then, but now he is reminding them of God's greatness. He is the one whose throne is in heaven with the earth as his footstool. He is too great to be restrained by a tabernacle or even the Ark of the Covenant. In fact, all the boxes that we try to put God into, he says, has not my hand made all of these things? Earlier this week, I was reminded of a situation that occurred many years ago. I was a brand new youth pastor. I graduated from college earlier that summer. And one of the big events that we had scheduled for our youth group was to attend the Carowinds Christian Music Day. This was always a great event as they typically had some great artists that would attend. But to be completely honest with you, I didn't know many of the Christian artists. I think I was so focused here when I was at college on me and the things that needed to be done, I really didn't know much about the Christian music industry. One of the things that I loved about this particular event was that they had a youth pastor's meet and greet opportunity where many of the artists would come through and introduce themselves. I remember one guy came up and introduced himself as Jeff Moore. Remember that I am clueless as to who sings and plays Christian music. I responded by asking, oh, are you a musician? Immediately, I could tell that he was either offended or disappointed. He replied, yes, I've got a band, and he turned around and walked away. Apparently, Jeff Moore and the Distance was a pretty big band back then, but I didn't know it. Well, God doesn't need to prove who he is. He doesn't need to prove his greatness. He is the all-powerful and the almighty God, greater than anything else that we could ever imagine. By the way, the application of this for you and I is that God is even bigger than this coronavirus. It may have caught most of humanity by surprise, but it did not catch God by surprise. And he could, in the blink of an eye, eradicate it. I admit that there are many questions that come to my mind with regard to this but I don't really have all the answers. If God could remove this disease, why doesn't he do it already? Is this God's judgment perhaps upon humanity? Maybe, maybe not. Is God trying to teach us something? In what way is God using this pandemic to transform humanity? The one thing that I do know is that God is over everything including this pandemic. Therefore, we must turn to him. And whether God grants us success or blessing, or maybe he chooses not to, his greatness has already been settled. He is over everything. Well, my guess is that even this was celebrated by the listening audience as Stephen spoke He's talking about who God is. Yes, God is great. That's wonderful. Certainly the religious leaders would not have argued against his greatness. But if God is truly great, and if he is truly too great to fit into our little box, then his expectations are probably also greater than ours. Listen to what Stephen says in verse 51 through 54 as he reminds them of their own blindness. 
gets personal here. You can understand where the amens might have stopped. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through the angels, but you have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. All right, so no more amens from the crowd. They liked everything that he said for the first basically 50 verses. This is a lot of fun. I like talking to Stephen. He's reminding us of our past. He's reminding us of how we got where we are today. He's reminding us of how great God is. And then he says, but you stiff-necked people. It all sounded good until it got personal. He's actually calling them names here when he says, you're a stiff-necked people. He's calling out their mamas and their daddies and even their grandparents and generations before. These religious leaders think they're good because they can trace their family heritage back to Abraham. But the truth is that those previous generations were just as sinful. Oh, sure, they looked and they sounded spiritual, but the good old days weren't really as good as y'all thought they were. Among the sins of their ancestors, we see one that is repeated on multiple occasions. The role of the prophet was to bring the word of God to the people of God. Sometimes this was an encouraging report. God will deliver you from bondage. That's a very encouraging report. Sometimes it was a not so encouraging report. Think of Jonah going to the people of Nineveh. That was not such an encouraging report. God is about to smite you. He is going to destroy you. Which one would you prefer? I know for me, I like the more positive one. God is going to deliver you. God is going to bless you. Well, the unfortunate reality was that there were some false prophets who would occasionally interject themselves into Israel's history. The people wanted that good report, but the real prophets gave a bad report. So a false prophet, was, prophet would set up, step up to the plate, telling the people what they wanted to hear. Well, there was a specific punishment reserved for a false prophet. If they said something that did not come true, the false prophet could be put to death. But herein lies the problem. What if the prophecy is regarding something that is going to take place years down the road? Maybe even a few hundred years down the road. As Stephen speaks, he mentions the murder of prophets who proclaim the coming of the Messiah. Perhaps he's talking about examples from generations earlier. We know that Jesus was prophesied hundreds of years before Christ ever came. Or perhaps he's talking about John the Baptist, who foretold the coming of the Messiah, who came to make a straight path to pave the way so that others would be ready to receive the message of Christ. John the Baptist himself was killed prior to Christ's crucifixion. The point is that these guys thought they were doing what was right, 
But the truth is that they were blindly leading others to destruction. This reminds me of the church of Laodicea as recorded in Revelation chapter 3. They think they're good. They think they're okay, but they're not. In Revelation 3 verse 17, it says, You say I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. These Pharisees, these religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, they do not realize that they are the ones who are blind. They are the ones who are broken and need to be changed. How does this apply to us? First, don't assume that because you have a long religious heritage that you are somehow okay. Don't assume that because you are good, because you're a good person, or you have some form of prosperity that God is pleased with you. Instead, take this as an opportunity to truly examine who you are. In their case, the real character comes out as they respond with bitterness and anger to the words which were spoken to them. It is only appropriate that as Stephen begins to proclaim in a personal way that you are blind and you are the ones who have committed this horrible act, it is only appropriate that he reminds them of their past of striking down those who said what they didn't want to hear, that they would respond in this way because this is who they are. Their real character comes out in their bitterness and anger. They didn't have a problem with Stephen until he got personal. They liked the truth as long as it wasn't offensive. What about you? How will you respond to the truth being spoken into your life? I've often thought of King David in regard to this. You see, King David was far from perfect. I know we look at him in a very positive light most of the time, but he was an adulterer. He was a liar. He was even a murderer. Yet when the prophet Nathan called him out, there was genuine brokenness and sorrow for what he had done. As the king, he could have simply decided, you know what, Nathan, who do you think you are coming to me I'm going to have you killed for calling me out for this. And he could have done that, but he did not. Instead, he pleads with Nathan to ask for God's forgiveness. I would imagine that it is this humble, transparent, repentant heart that was so attractive to God. What if I told you today that your sexual immorality and your perverse language displeases God. Would you respond with bitterness? Who does he think he is? It's none of his business the way I talk. It's none of his business if I'm looking at pornography. It's none of his business if I'm having a relationship that doesn't belong. What if I stood here today and called you by name and identified the sin that you were participating in? And I declare to you that this displeases God. What if I told you that this coronavirus might be God's tool to point out how much idolatry 
talking about our sports and entertainment and maybe even our work, how much idolatry we have allowed into our lives and that the word of God is calling you to repent. Does that make you angry? Or does that make you genuinely want to seek God's grace in your life? You see two very contrasting images there. David, a man who knew that what he did was wrong, even though he may have justified it in his mind. When it was addressed, he responded with repentance. Then you have these people that are dealing with Stephen and he is calling them out for their sin. And their immediate response is to become angry. It says they gnashed their teeth at him, which is a sign of severe anger. Have you ever gritted your teeth at other individuals because you were so angry and disgusted by them? How will you respond? As not only I address these things here today, but as the Holy Spirit addresses things in your life. Will you tune him out? Will you ignore his conviction? Or will you allow this to become a turning point in your life? Well, I have one last thing that I want you to see in today's passage. Stephen discovers firsthand that the truth will not always be well received. Yet God remains faithful anyways. Always remember God's faithfulness. After calling them out for their sin, he declares that God is giving him a vision that includes the Son of Man, Jesus Christ himself, standing at the right hand of God. Immediately, we are given the image of these spiritually blind religious leaders throwing a two-year-old tantrum, covering their ears, and wanting to just make it all go away. Literally, it says that they covered their ears and they shouted like a two-year-old. You ever had a kid, I, I don't hear you, I don't hear you, la, 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 la. That's what I picture as this is being described. They drag him outside to have him stoned to death. And instead of him pleading for his life, we see someone who truly understood the heart of God. Instead of pleading for his own life, he pleads for their lives. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. These are the same words that Jesus prayed while he was on the cross. The first part of this is that God is faithful to Stephen even though he still had to endure suffering. In the midst of his persecution, God reveals himself to him. Kind of reminds me of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they're thrown into the fiery furnace. I'm sure they would have preferred to avoid the fiery furnace. Nobody wants to be punished. Nobody wants to suffer. But it was in the fiery furnace that they experienced the Son of God. So they're still suffering. But God is faithful even in that. The second part of this is that God is still faithful to who he is. In spite of the sins of the religious leaders, God still loves them. It's a part of the prayer that's being offered there. Father, forgive them. You know what horrible people they are. 
You know the decisions that they're making. But I know, God, that you love them still. So I'm praying that you would forgive them for what they're doing. God still loves them. And he longs for them to be made right with him. That's why Stephen's prayer is so important. It is revealing the heart of God that now dwells in Stephen. The application for us is simple. No matter where you have been, no matter how far you are away from God, no matter how good or bad your family heritage may be, we can all know that God is faithful. And as such, he desires for all of us to be made right with him. He loves you. He wants that right relationship with you. In the midst of your brokenness, in the midst of your suffering, you can still know that you can depend on him. He will be there to provide. My question to you today, there are many challenges here within this particular passage, but my question to you today is how will you respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your life? Maybe there are things that you're doing that do not belong in a believer's life. Maybe there are things today, maybe I even mentioned some of them in my sermon that people are doing and perhaps God is speaking to you right now and maybe you're struggling with that pornography addiction. Maybe you're struggling with an adulterous relationship. Maybe you are sexually impure. Maybe you have a language problem. Or maybe it's something that I haven't even mentioned. But right now, the Holy Spirit is speaking to you and he is calling you out on sin that does not belong in your life. How will you respond? I believe today that our God desires a repentant heart. You don't have to have been perfect before you came in here today, before you began this process, before you turned on your TV or whatever it is you're watching on today. But God desires right now for you to lay down those things and to leave them in your past. You know, every one of us has things that are in our past, but the key is making sure that they're in our past and not in our present nor in our future. How will you respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit today? Will you surrender your life to him, which includes all of those things that we've hung on to that do not belong in us? Or will we respond with bitterness, almost a gnashing of our teeth. Well, I'm not listening to this church anymore. I'm not going to listen to this pastor anymore. It just makes me feel guilty for the things that I've done. By the way, I've actually heard that. There are times that we become so blinded by all of our ugliness that's in our lives. We just say, you know, I don't want to go to church anymore. I don't want to hear the pastor speak because I feel guilty when I do. Well, guess what? Maybe we need to recognize our guilt. And maybe what we simply need to do is to respond in a way that says, I don't want to carry that guilt anymore. I want to be set free. I want to leave the past in the past. And from this moment forward, me walk as one who has been redeemed, who has been changed. So that as I stated earlier, I said that I will never be the person I was before I came to Christ. I want you to be able to say the same thing. Will you surrender your life to him?
leaving those things behind. If you would bow your heads with me. Father, as we come before you today, Lord, we recognize that we have all fallen short of your glory. All of us have sinned. We have allowed things to take place in our lives that do not belong. Maybe some of us are still in the midst of that. Father, I pray right now that you would remove whatever vice, whatever addiction, whatever behavior that does not belong. Thank you that you are still convicting us, reminding us of where sin exists, and you are still calling us to leave it in the past. Father, I pray right now that you would deliver us from evil. I pray that you would give us victory and that those things that maybe they've taken root in our lives, that suddenly you would dig them up and they would no longer be a part of who we are. I pray for your forgiveness. You tell us that if we confess our sins to you, that you are faithful and just and you will forgive us. You will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we believe today that as we confess our sins, that what's in the past has been forgiven. But I pray today that as we move forward, you would no longer allow us to carry our past into the future. Instead, I pray that from this moment forward, we would walk as those who have your victory and have been set free. Thank you that your love is extended to us in spite of the things we've done. May we always walk in appreciation for your love and grace to us. Thank you again for all that you've done to bring us to this point, even the difficulty. May you be honored as we respond to the things we face today and in this week. In Christ's name we pray, amen. It is a privilege to have each of you with us today, and if there is anything that we can do to minister to you, uh, we want to be able to do that. I want to encourage you. There are uh, There's one other link that is on our church website, and I would just call your attention to it. Uh, if you have a prayer need, uh, if you will click on that link and share that with us, we would love to be able to pray specifically for you. Again, we are so looking forward to being able to see real faces aside from just us. Uh, but that being said, we love being able to do it in this capacity as well, to be able to worship with you and to be able to share Christ. And I hope you'll continue to check in and continue to participate. I know different places are at different stages of returning. Uh, some of you listen from places outside of South Carolina. I want to encourage you uh, we're going to keep doing this regardless of what stage we're in, what, regardless of what stage you're in. If we can minister to you, we want to be able to do it. So let us know how we can minister to you. Thank you for being with us this morning, and hopefully I'll see you again next week.